This video is part of an audiobook series featuring Narrative Economics by Robert J. Schiller, How Stories Go Viral and Drive Major Economic Events. For more audiobooks, please visit my YouTube channel or my website for downloads. Chapter 14. Automation and Artificial Intelligence Replace Almost All Jobs. The narrative of technological unemployment as causing a problem for the indefinite future did not disappear with World War II. In fact, it repeatedly mutated and took on a different form of virulence, often associated with the terms automation or artificial intelligence, as figure 14.1 shows. There were at least four post-World War II narratives about artificial intelligence, peaking, respectively, in the 1960s, 1980s, 1990s, and 2010s. As of this writing, the artificial intelligence narrative of the 2010s looks to be heading even higher. Each time, the narrative suggested that the world was only just now reaching a frightening major turning point when the machines take over. Because of Rossum's universal robots, described in the preceding chapter, because they could talk, they represented a form of artificial intelligence, but there was no story regarding how such intelligence might be achieved. The robots were like the talking animals in children's stories. But the idea of automation and artificial intelligence repeatedly gained new epidemic proportions as the idea took on new concreteness. Fears of automation were likely associated with fears of an impending depression. A year-end 1945 Fortune public opinion survey conducted by Elmo Roper asked the U.S. public, um, Do you expect we will probably have a widespread depression within 10 years or so after the war is over, or do you think we probably will be able to avoid it? The results by percent were that 48.9% believed that they would have a depression, 40.9% thought that we could probably avoid it. 10.2% don't know. So about half the U.S. population expected a depression after World War II. Most likely, their answers reflected their still strong memories of the Great Depression and post-World War I narratives that we have discussed rather than any clear forecast. Fortunately, these expectations were wrong. There was no recurrence of depression. Yes, there was a fatalistic fear of a returned depression, but the angry narratives of the recent depression had faded, including the angry narrative of profiteering that contributed to the post-World War I depression. That narrative just did not restart. In addition, the idea that prices should fall to 1913 levels no longer seemed realistic. The end of World War II was also a distraction that temporarily reduced attention to technological unemployment. Instead, a constellation of economic narratives after World War II began to suggest that it was all right to spend money now that the war was over. We discuss profiteering and the expectation of lower prices in more detail in Chapter 17. Among these narratives was the story of the many expensive vacations that Americans were taking right after the war, which offset the frugality narratives of the Great Depression. The greatest surge in travel in the history of the Americas was on, and 1946, 
the, the year after the end of the war, was dubbed the Victory Vacation Year. Even a couple of years before the, world, the war ended, travel agents and vacation resorts in the Western Hemisphere had begun promoting the extravagant traveling victory vacation as a way for consumers to spend some of the wealth that they'd socked away in government war bonds. When the vacations actually happened in 1946, the vacationers duly recorded them on new ready mounts, 35mm color slides, and stored those slides in a new case that complemented last year's Christmas present, a slide projector. Also, consumers used home movie cameras, which had been mostly unavailable until the years after World War I, to create extensive travelogues. These slides and movies of the vacation, as well as of the new baby, probably born around 1946 or 47, were shown to friends and relatives back home, spreading the sense of happy times and a patriotic feeling about the shared experience of spending extravagance. People also began to see their new optimism bolstered by their perception of others' optimism. The baby boom, first noted in 1946, marked a big difference from the end of World War I, which was followed by a deadly influenza epidemic instead of a baby boom. The new optimistic stories after 1948 became a self-fulfilling prophecy, a term coined in 1948 by Robert Merton. A 1950 newspaper article asserted, quote, With such an optimistic consensus as has developed at this year end, the forecasting itself can have the effect of helping to promote high activity, end quote. But the question we must ask is this. Why did so many people in 1945, at the end of World War II, expect a post-war depression? And why did the intermittent recessions in the 1950s and 60s interrupt the overall optimism? The answer must lie in good part in a Great Depression narrative that still had intermittent power in the post-war period, the same technological unemployment narrative, but in mutated form. The Automation Recession Narrative The same zero-hour for the labor-saving machinery economic narrative that appeared in 1929 reappeared late in the second half of the 20th century, but in mutated forms. The term singularity, singularity began to be used after Einstein published his general theory of relativity in 1915. The word denotes a situation in which some terms of the equations become infinite, and it was used to describe the astronomical phenomenon of what came to be called the black hole, a singularity in space-time. But later, the glamorous term singularity came to be defined as the time when machines are finally smarter than people in all dimensions. Such mutations in the economic narrative shifted attention from the muscles being replaced by electrical machines to the brain being replaced by artificial intelligence. The basic technological unemployment narrative is the same, but the examples have a wider scope. First, giant locomotives and electrical power equipment economized on human muscle power. After the mutation, the narrative focused on computers replacing human thinking. This mutation refreshed the narrative. The term automation differs from labor-saving in that automation suggests no one is near the production process 
except perhaps for a technician in a distant control room who presses buttons to start the process. Automation was then described in the 1950s not just as machines, but rather as machines running machines. It suggests a process that runs by itself with no one even paying attention. Around 1955, the word automation suddenly launched into an epidemic. There was considerable public worry that jobs would be replaced. Notably, electronic data processing began to run whole business operations. The new narrative was of a more wholesale replacement of human involvement in production than in the technological unemployment narrative of the 1920s and 30s. The year 1956 saw the first automation strike, fomented by fear of the push-button age. Stories were told of an unimaginable leap forward in automation. This from 1956, quote, Visitors to an eastern manufacturing plant stared in amazement recently as they viewed a new type of factory in operation. While they watched, enormous sheets of steel were fed into a conveyor system. Then, the steel traveled along 27 miles of conveyors, was worked over by 2,613 machines and tools, and emerged as a brand new refrigerator, packed, crated, and ready for shipment. What, ma what amazed the visitors was the fact that no human hands touched the machines or steel, while two gleaming white refrigerators were being produced every minute. They were seeing automation in action, end quote. Automation was also seen as foretelling the imminent end of labor unions, which had stood up for workers' rights in the past. It is impossible for labor to organize the machines. Surveys of workers show a sudden shift around the time of the 1957 to 1958 and 1960-61 twin recessions. Public opinion analyst Samuel Lubell, famous for his success at predicting, predicting election outcomes, wrote during the slow economy in 1959 between the two recessions, quote, In the spring of 1958, when I conducted a survey of how the public felt about the recession, relatively few persons talked of automation, even as a cause of unemployment. Currently, every third or fourth worker one interviews is likely to cite some case history drawn from personal experience of workers displaced by machinery. Often the tagline in these stories is the rueful comment, some men will never get back their jobs, and some say it's only the beginning. The same gloomy prediction, in two years a machine will be, be doing my job, was voiced by an elevator operator on Staten Island, an accountant in Cleveland, a switchman in Youngstown, and a, re and a railway clerk in Detroit, end quote. These twin recessions, the severest since the Great Depression, may have been caused by reduced spending attendant on public fears about the future amidst the automation scare. The 1957-58 recession was then dubbed the Automation Recession. The 1957 motion picture The Desk Set, starring legendary actors Catherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy, is about a company is set at a company about to acquire an IBM mainframe computer called Emirac. Hepburn plays the role of Bunny Watson, a super knowledgeable reference librarian for the company. Tracy plays Richard Sumner, a computer engineer who is working on plans for the new computer. 
In the course of the movie, Richard falls in love with Bunny and proposes to her, amidst tensions that he is working to destroy her livelihood. The movie notes that an early computer has already automated payroll and eliminated many jobs in the payroll department. Tension builds in the film when Emmerak malfunctions and sends out pink slips firing not only Bunny, but also everyone at the company. The mistake is later corrected. The film shows the computer taking over some of the functions of the company's reference library by answering questions typed on a console. For example, Emmerak is asked, what is the total weight of the Earth? Emmerak answers, with or without people. I recently asked the voice-activated Google Assistant, OK Google, the same question, and it answered matter-of-factly, 5.972 times 10 to the 24 kilograms. Okay, Bunny then asks Emmerak, should Bunny Watson marry Richard Sumner? Emmerak answers, no perhaps suggesting that the computer was romantically involved with her creator. I asked OK Google the same question, and it responded by directing me to a 2011 New Yorker article, Is iPad the New Emirac? Hmm. Extensive concern about the dangers of automation continued into the 1960s. In 1962, the Center for the Study of Democratic Institutions reported an issue on CyberNation, a word that started to take off as a synonym for automation, but fizzled out after the 1960s. The report concluded, quote, Cybernation presages changes in the social system so vast and so different from those with which we have traditionally wrestled that it will challenge to their roots our, our current perceptions about the viability of our way of life. If our democratic system has a chance to survive at all, we shall need far more understanding of the consequences of cybernation, end quote. In 1963, labor leader George Meany tied a demand for a 35-hour workweek to concerns about automation. In 1964, U.S. President Lyndon Johnson signed into law during the presidential election a bill creating the National Commission on Technology, Automation, and Economic Progress. The commission's report was delayed until 1966, when the scare was mostly over. The 1957-66 automation scare seemed to dissipate rather quickly, and for a number of years. In 1965, the Wall Street Journal ran a, ran a story by Alfred Malibre Jr., titled, Automation Alarm is Proving False. The article noted that people in 1965 seemed to just have forgotten about automation. Malibre found it interesting that automation wasn't even mentioned at a major United Auto Workers labor convention in 1965. The article concluded, The degree to which this pessimism pervaded the leading councils of labor, the campus, the government, and even management, was, to say the least, extensive. Star Wars Stories The automation scare came roaring back to life in the 1980s. We've seen that narratives often recur in mutated forms. Sometimes the narrative, the new narratives make use of new words, but sometimes an old word comes back. Figure 14.1 shows an enormous spike of automation in the early 1980s. Use of the word robot coined in the 1920s, shows an enormous spike in the early 1980s as well. One possible explanation. 
the contagiousness of robot stories was encouraged by the phenomenal success of home computer manufacturers Atari and Apple, which led people to believe that technical progress was accelerating. A company called The Robot Store began manufacturing and selling humanoid robots in 1983. These robots looked like people, and the company's president predicted that between 10% and 20% of American households would own robots within two years. In fact, these devices were practically useless, and the product line flopped. Consistent with this observed spike of the word robot around 1980, we observe a sequence of very successful robot movies around the same time, showing how contagion can change over time and bring new viral stories with it. George Lucas's Star Wars trilogy, a sequence of three movies that appeared between 1977 and 1983, featured the world's most famous robots to date, R2-D2 and C-3PO. The American television cartoon feature The Transformers, which focused on the adventures of gigantic robots with the ability to transform themselves into vehicles and weaponry, aired from 1984 to 87. Both of these series were accompanied by a massive sale of children's toy figures. Blade Runner, in 1982, and The Terminator, in 1984, were other successful robot films of that time. Of course, robots had appeared in movies long before the 1970s, and they continue to do so today. In fact, robots in movies precede even the word robot coined by Capek, the Czech playwright, which started to go viral in 1922. Notably, film robots, or automatons, were called dummies, as in the dummy in 1917, or mechanical men, as in l'homo mechanico, 1921. More, mo many more robots appeared in movies after 1922, notably Futura in Fritz Lang's 1927 Metropolis, which called a robot a Mackinen Mensch, or Machine Men, or Machine Man. However, most films featuring robots were B-grade horror movies with wildly implausible and juvenile themes, analogous to Space Aliens Destroy the World films, that have had relatively little impact on public thinking. These mostly silly movies probably did not have much impact on economic activity, except where they may have lent emotional color to fears about the automated future. Another spike in successful robot movies preceded the automation scare in 1957-64. Film robots of that era included Roman in The Robot Monster, 1953, Tobor, which is robot spelled backward, in Tobor the Great, 1954, Chani in Devil Girl from Mars, 1954, the Venusian robots in Target Earth from 1954, Robbie the Robot in Forbidden Planet from 1956, Kronos in Kronos Destroyer of the Universe in 1957, the Colossus in The Colossus of New York, 1957, and Mogera in The Mysterians, 1957. Whew. A significantly mutated form of the automation narrative came back with the twin recessions of 1980 and 1981-82, when the unemployment rate reached the double digits. 
the unemployment encouraged the thought that automation might again be responsible for the loss of jobs, an idea that must have fed back into reduced aggregate demand and even higher unemployment. In 1982, Andrew Pollack of the New York Times discerned a new automation exemplified by the now very visible beginnings of automation of offices, saying, quote, Those affected so far by office automation have been mainly secretaries who are still in short supply and other clerical workers whose tasks can be sped up by replacing typewriters with electronic word processors and filing cabinets with computerized storage systems. But new office automation systems are affecting management as well, because they give managers the ability to call up information out of the company computers and analyze it themselves, a function that once required a staff of subordinates and mid-level management." End quote. Once again, the narrative went viral, that we had reached a singularity that made all past experience with labor-saving machinery irrelevant, that might just now be producing a huge army of unemployed. I don't see where we can run to this time, Pollock says. This viral narrative may well be the real reason that these twin 1980s recessions were so damaging. As figure 14.1 shows, there was a third spike in automation around 1995. Once again, narratives surged that a singularity was at hand that made all past experience with labor-saving devices obsolete. In 1995, at the very beginning of the internet boom, there was a narrative about the advent of computer networks. Quote, most economists think the ill effects of automation are transitory, but a growing minority of their colleagues and many technologists think the current surge of technological change differs from anything seen before, for two reasons. First, tractors put only farmers out of work, and machine tool automation only factory workers, but smart devices and computer networks can, in can invade almost every job category involving computing, communication, or simple deduction. They can fill out and check mortgage loan forms and transfer phone calls, and even allow cows to milk themselves without human assistance at micro-controlled milkers. No technology has ever been as protean, so unrestrained by physical limits, so capable of cutting huge swaths through unrelated industries such as banking, power utilities, insurance, and telecommunications. Second, the power of devices and networks run by microprocessors and software is increasing at a rate never seen before, roughly doubling in performance every 18 months or so. Among other things, this trend leads to unprecedented reductions in the cost of microchip-based technology, allowing it to be used much more widely and rapidly. End quote. This new twist in the fear of automation narrative around 1995 did not immediately produce a recession. Most people were not moved to curtail spending because of it, and the world economy boomed. The dominant narratives in the 1990s seemed to be focused on the wonderful business opportunities brought by the coming new millennium. The automation narratives trailed off again in the 2000s with the distractions of the dot-com boom, the real estate boom, and the world financial crisis of 2007 to 2009. But the automation narratives are still with us, described by new catchphrases.
the dot-com or millennium boom in the stock markets. The Internet, first available to the public around 1994, launched a narrative of the amazing power of computers. Before the turn of the century, the Internet age appeared to coincide with the coming of the new millennium in 2000, and much talk about it about when it was an imminent future event. Dot-com stocks were the primary beneficiaries in the years leading up to 2000. During the market expansion from 1974 to 2000, stock prices rose more than 20-fold. The period marked the biggest stock market expansion in U.S. history, and descriptions of the expansion suggested exactly that. This story is beginning to be forgotten now, as it is being replaced by the narratives surrounding the mere threefold expansion following the world financial crisis of 2007 to 2009, which are more contagious at the time of this writing. Discussions of the stock market expansion in the last quarter of the 20th century did not stress fears of being replaced by machines as a motive to buy dot-com stocks. Why? People tend to speak more of the opportunity provided by investments in information age inventions than of their personal feelings of inadequacy in the face of technological progress. But it appears that such feelings may have driven people's motivation to be part of the dot-com phenomenon as the stockholders of tech companies. Fears of the singularity gain strength after the 2007-2009 world financial crisis. According to Google Trends, the latest wave of automation and technology-based fears began around 2016 and continues unabated at the time of this writing. How do we explain this recent surge in automation fears? To answer the question, we must consider the advent of Apple's Siri, the iPhone app launched in 2011 that uses automatic speech recognition, ASR, and natural language understanding, NLU, to attempt to understand and answer the questions you've asked. To many, Siri's ability to talk, understand, and provide information looked like the advent of that long-awaited singularity when machines become as smart as or smarter than people. That same year, IBM presented its talking computer Watson as a competitor on the television show Jeopardy, and Watson beat the human champions who played against it. Now these are followed by Amazon Echo's Alexa, Google's OK Google, and other variations and improvements, such as Alibaba's Tmall Genie, Linglong's Ding Dong, and Yandex's Alice. These inventions were amazing. The time prophesied by Star Wars, the Transformers, and the Jetsons seemed finally to have arrived. Apple, Apple bought Siri from its creator, SRI, the Stanford Research Institute International, which had developed it with government funding from DARPA, the U.S. Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, between 2003 and 2008. These earlier projects did not go viral. 2011 was the year in which, suddenly, people had a device in their pockets to talk with and show off to almost unbelieving admirers. Siri, and its soon-to-follow competitors, seemed to start the process of eliminating the need for human conversation. We might imagine preferring Siri as a conversation partner to a human, because Siri's information is much more comprehensive and reliable. 
the idea that humans were ultimately replaceable was a scary thought, and it is easy to imagine a resulting loss of humanity's collective self-esteem. Around the same time, other inventions also attracted great public attention, notably driverless cars, which, despite some worries about safety, are predicted to replace many jobs. Though very few of us had actually seen a driverless car, we all knew that prototypes were already on our highways. These autonomous vehicles can already do things that we assumed were not programmable, like slowing down when the car senses children running around near the street. Human common sense can be reduced to a list of signals to a driverless car, which means that human common sense can be replaced. Recent talk has stressed machine learning, in which computers are designed to learn for themselves rather than be programmed using human intelligence. A Google Trends web search for machine learning reveals a strong uptrend in 2012, with the Google search index more than quadrupling between 2004 and 2019. The narrative is propelled by recent stories. The highly successful chess computer program Alpha Zero is described as working purely through machine learning, that is, without use of any human ideas about how to play chess. The narrative describes a tabula rasa, or blank slate, program that plays vast numbers of chess games against itself, given no more information than the rules of the game, and learns from its own mistakes. In some ways, the machine learning narrative is more troubling than computers running human-generated programs. Historian Yuval Noah Harari describes this narrative as leading toward a growing fear of irrelevance of ourselves and worries about falling into a new, useless class. If they grow into a sizable epidemic, such existential fears certainly have the potential to affect economic confidence and thus the economy. Of Jobs and Steve Jobs The story of Steve Jobs is a remarkable narrative that ties into the fear of job loss to mechanization. His story was told in many books that appeared around the time of the 2007 to 2009 world financial crisis. Particularly notable was the 2011 book Steve Jobs by Walter Isaacson, which sold 379,000 copies in its first week on sale, becoming a number one New York Times bestseller, and has over 6,500 reviews on Amazon, with an average ranking of 4.5 stars out of 5. Isaacson specializes in the biographies of geniuses, including Einstein, Benjamin Franklin, and Elon Musk. But his book about jobs was by far his most successful, why did his book about jobs go viral? Part of the answer was timing. The publisher wisely dropped it into the market just weeks after Steve Jobs' death, allowing the news media narrative of his death to interact with talk about the book. Interestingly, the Steve Jobs narrative made it appear that Jobs, a real human being with quirks that no one would program into a robot, was totally dispensable for Apple Computer. Jobs' own story therefore became appealing to people who worry about their own possible obsolescence. He founded the company, but was forced out, the story goes, because drab managerial types could not tolerate his eccentric eccentricities. 
when Apple began to fail, he was called back and breathed new life into the company, which is today one of the most successful in the world. The Steve Jobs narrative is a fantasy for people who don't quite fit into conventional society, as many people with inflated egos but modest success in life may see themselves. Economic Consequences of the Narratives About Labor-Saving and Intelligent Machines We have traced much popular attention over two centuries to narratives about machines that will replace jobs. These narratives certainly affected, and continue to affect, people's willingness to spend on consumption and investments, as well as their eagerness to engage in entrepreneurship and speculation. The economic hardships created by a temporary recession or depression are mistaken for the job-destroying effects of the machines, which creates pessimistic economic responses as self-fulfilling prophecies. Henry George's solution to the labor-saving machines problem, and the defining proposal of his book Progress in Poverty, published during the Depression of the 1870s, was to impose a single tax on land, to tax away on labor-saving inventions as benefits to landowners. George's proposal assumed that the sole purpose of the new machines was to work the land, which might be the case if the economy is purely agricultural. This proposal is analogous to a much-discussed robot tax that appeared in public discussion during the Great Depression and has reappeared in the last few years. Taxing companies that use robots, the argument goes, will provide revenue to, the, to help the government deal with the unemployment consequences of robotics. George proposed to distribute part of the tax proceeds as a public benefit. His proposal is essentially the same universal basic income proposal that is talked about so often today. Quote, In this all would share equally, the weak with the strong, the young children and decrepit old men, the maimed, the halt, and the blind, as well as the vigorous, end quote. Other incarnations of the universal basic income proposal were offered by Lady Juliet Rice Williams in a 1943 book, Something to Look Forward to, A Suggestion for a New Social Contract, and by Robert Theobald in a 1963 book, Free Men and Free Markets. The Basic Income European Network, B-I-E-N, an advocacy group was founded in 1986 and later renamed the Basic Income Earth Network. The narrative that the future will be jobless for many or most people has helped sustain support for a progressive income tax and for an earned income tax credit, though in modern times it has not succeeded in producing a universal basic income in any country. The mutating technology and unemployment narrative tends to attract public attention when a new story creates the impression that the problems generated by technological unemployment are reaching a crisis point. A celebrated 1932 book by Charles Whiting Baker, Pathways Back to Prosperity, sought to explain why the public's concerns about labor-saving machines replacing jobs were wrong until now. The early 1930s. Baker emphasized the newness, the widespread use of automatic machinery and economic transportation is only a thing of yesterday. He stressed that unemployment was a new long-term problem, not going away, ever. 
Thus, Baker advocated something like a universal basic income for all. Quote, We have got to face the fact that there is one way, and only one, that whereby we can make a purchase for our huge we can make a market for our huge surplus of goods, increase the purchasing power of the 95% of the families of the U.S. who have only tiny incomes, and they will at once buy more, end quote. Recent years have seen a renewal in this great wave of concern as new redistribution proposals are put forth and discussed. Notably, Google Trends shows a huge uptrend in searches for the term universal basic income, starting in 2012. ProQuest News and Newspapers reveals essentially the same uptrend. Public attention to inequality has burgeoned, with much attention to the increased share of income by the top 1% or the top one-tenth of 1%. Thomas Piketty's Capital in the 21st Century which described this trend, was a bestseller that generated intense discussion. The term digital divide has gone viral, describing a sort of inequality related to access to digital computers. No one can predict the effects of labor-saving and intelligent machines on livelihoods and work in the future, but the narratives themselves have the potential to drive amplified economic booms and recessions, as well as public policy. The narratives at the time of this writing about artificial intelligence and machine learning replacing human intelligence and disintermediating skilled workers lend an instability to expenditure and entrepreneurship patterns. These and other economic narratives may show up in the speculative, speculative markets, notably the real estate markets and the stock markets, to which we turn in the next two chapters. Thank you for watching. Please like, subscribe, and visit my channel for more exciting content.